excitement along with me. We had the lights go out. Anybody remember that last week? Rain pouring down like crazy. What's kind of funny is we have a we have a video camera on the side door to make sure it's shut, and like you can see the time when the rain came out. It was like a shh, like it was just like in sheets in that moment, and then the lights went out. We and I uh, went on and preached in the dark for the rest of it because you know we're not going to stop, right? We're going to keep going. Um, afterwards, somebody said, "I can't believe you kept going." It's like it never occurred to me to stop. Okay. <laughs> It never even occurred to me to not give you the whole sermon. We were going to do it in the dark if we had to. But um, I was sorry that we, since we didn't have any power, I couldn't show you a few of the pictures. If, for those of you that are new with us today, I've been going through uh, the journeys of the Apostle Paul and his missionary journeys in Acts. And Paul, my, my Paul, Graham, and I went on a trip about seven years ago where we were able to go through Greece and Turkey and Rome in order to see some of these sites. And so I've been showing you some pictures, and some of them, sometimes just the pictures like a thousand words, right? So um, I just was, I wanted to show you. So we're going to go backwards before we go forwards today, if that's okay. And we're just going to take a minute to show you something from last week. Um, one of my main points from last week was not to despise smallness. That God is at work in the small things and in the small starts. And we talked about the temple back in the days of Israel when they rebuilt the temple after the uh, invasion of Babylon. And it was so much smaller and less grand than the original temple. But God said, I'm, 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 I rejoice in this work that you're doing. I rejoice in the small work. And so whether we're a small person, a small church, a, even, even if Christianity kind of waxes and wanes in certain areas of the world, um, God is still at work. He takes care of his church. And so one of the most touching symbols of this was a, um, a church that I saw in, or a, a site in Sardis. So I want to just take you to the, the map here. There's Sardis right in the middle of what was then known as Asia. It's right at the end of Turkey there. Uh, kind of the western end of Turkey. And Paul, there's no record that Paul actually went to Sardis, although he may have, but it's very near many of the other churches where he did go, um, very near Ephesus. It's also mentioned in Revelation as one of the seven churches um, that were kind of in a circle there. And so um, we know it was around in the early days of the church. And if you go to the next um, slide, what you'll see is this is a big temple to Artemis in Sardis. Now you may, this is kind of the steps going up to the temple. This is the whole place of the temple, and these are all the different um, pillars. This was one of the fifth, I think it was the fifth largest temple, no, fourth largest temple in ancient times, and so it would have had 56 columns. If we go to the next picture, you can see here how big this was, like the footprint of the, of the temple, and then this is two, these two columns have never fallen down in all of all time from antiquity. So they've been standing, they've never been, had to be re refurbished or anything. You can see the other columns in the background are have all been fallen down, but these two have been standing ever since the times of Jesus, which is kind of amazing. If you go to the next one here, you can see how big these columns were and how there were so many of them. This was an enormous temple all to the goddess Artemis, okay? Um, and so what was really moving to me was when, I think it's the next picture now, this little spot over here. So here's this big temple, and there's this little structure. And you're like, what is that? And we walked over to it, and the next slide, if you see from the other angle, it's a small Byzantine church that was built literally right up against these two pillars. Probably thought it was a strong place to build a little church, but what a tiny little church. And this was built actually in the 5th century AD, so it's, it's a few centuries later. This temple was probably not in use at that time, although it may still have been standing. So it would have been this incredibly huge structure. And then here's this little tiny church. Go to the next slide. You can see kind of this is the side of the church, kind of up against that big pillar. Uh, the next picture, 
shows you kind of the inside uh, of this kind of, this is like the inside where the person would have spoken from, I guess, the apps. So it's very, very tiny. And just to prove that Paul and I were really there, the next slide shows you there we are. <laughs> Um, standing in the thing. I know you think I just pulled these all off the internet. We really actually were there. Um, and so what was so moving to me, you can go to the next slide, what was so moving to me is this tiny little church in the shadow of this huge temple to Artemis. And if you look at the next slide, you can just see this is what they would have looked out and seen up to, but in the shadow of the gods, they, the Holy Spirit was there. And they worship the one true God, the great God, the mighty God. And so it doesn't matter how small they were, their God was bigger still than every God in any temple that was ever built. And I just wanted you to see that. I just, is a picture worth a thousand words? Is that, are you happy to have seen that? Um, so I was, just wanted to show you that, um, you know, wherever we are, we're, we're not big, we're not a mega church, but what God is doing here is so precious in his sight. He is so delighted in you and in me and in on everything that, that God is doing through this place and, and many, many other small churches. Do you know that in Pomona Park, in our this little area, there's probably nine churches that meet, and some of them are half the size of us, a quarter of the size, um, but they meet, and they're, they're worshiping the Lord, they're loving Jesus and, and serving him. And so that's what I wanted to show you um, from last week. Um, now we're going to forward, fast forward to this week, and we're going to continue with the journeys of Paul, but we're going to take, uh, go with Paul down to Athens in Greece, and the passage we're going to read from is a little bit long. Um, you're welcome to turn to it. It's in Acts 17, and I asked Daniel if he would come read it just so that you don't get sick of my voice, um, and he will read it so much better. So we're going to go from Acts 17, 16 to 34, and um, he's going to read it for you. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For one, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being." As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has sent a day 
when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Daniel. That was great. Yeah, give him a hand. He did a great job. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would open up our eyes and our hearts to your word today. Lord, may we learn from Paul in Athens and how he reached his culture, reached the people there uh, with your word and with your kingdom uh, message. So we thank you, Lord, for this time. Open up our hearts. We, we're listening, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I had two very different Christian friends when I was growing up, good friends of mine. I had one friend who was from a very, um, very conservative Christian family. She was not allowed to wear pants to school, and she was never allowed to wear jeans. She had to wear dresses all the time. She wasn't allowed to wear jewelry or earrings or makeup or clothes that were flashy of any kind. Um, she always had her hair in two neat braids down the back of her uh, back, which went all the way down almost to her bottom because she wasn't ever allowed to cut it. She also wasn't allowed to go to the movies. She never attended any of the school dances. She rarely knew the TV shows that we watched. She really stood out. She was very different, um, separate. She was not like us regular kids. I had another friend who came from an, also came from a Christian family. She went to church pretty regularly. She had done her confirmation. She went to confession and mass regularly. But this friend also knew how to party it up. She's the one who introduced me to those little tiny bottles of whiskey that you can hide really easily in your backpack and bring them into the back of the school bus. She's the one who introduced me how to pick up boys, and she was always picking up new boys. She was also one who cursed. She skipped class. Um, she was like a lot of the cool, popular kids in school. And I have to tell you that as an atheist girl, I had no faith at that time. Neither one of these approaches to faith attracted me to Jesus. I thought my partying friend was a lot of fun, but honestly, I thought she was kind of a hypocrite, if I had, would have been asked. Um, she said she believed something, but it obviously had no impact on her life. She looked and, and talked and acted just like everyone else, um, did all the things that all the rest of us did. But I also thought my sweet conservative friend was also a little strange. I liked her. We were good friends. But I thought it was a little weird. Um, what does God care about if you wear jeans? Like, why is that an issue? And I just couldn't understand it. I didn't want any part of that. And so we're going to get a little philosophical today, okay? We're going to be with Paul. He was talking to the philosopher, so we're going to get a little philosophical. And I'm going to give you sort of two big words um, that are kind of represented by these two extremes. These are extremes, although they're not all that unusual. I'm sure that most of you, have, you know, either know people or maybe even you grew up uh, like one of those two friends of mine. But there's two approaches to faith which affect how we're going to be missional and how we can be in a light in our culture. One is called assimilation. Say Assimilation. Assimilation. The idea is go ahead and look like the world around you. Act like the world around you. Don't stand out. Your faith is there, and you can talk about it, maybe, but don't let it make you different from other people and what they do. By being different or weird, you only distance people from you. And the other word is differentiation. Say differentiation. differentiation. 
This means to be set apart, to be different, to even isolate because the influence of the world is dangerous. Don't try to relate. Anything that smacks of the world is tainted. We're supposed to look different. We're the people of God. Richard Niebauer in his book, Christ and Culture, talks about these two approaches, and he calls them Christ of culture or Christ against culture. And throughout the centuries, Christians have taken these two approaches, whether to be more like culture or to be standing against culture. And they're both extreme when they're taken to their logical conclusions, right? But neither approach appealed to the one person who really needed to find Jesus, and that was me. Neither one appealed to me. And I want to say to us today that this is still a tension that we live with as Christians, isn't it? We have this question, and every missionary who's worth their salt asks this question all the time when they're in a brand new culture. How do we work within the culture? How do we let it influence us? Um, you know, when do we stand with it and, help, and, and encourage it? And when do we stand against it? And what will help the good news to be heard? That's the key. Another way of thinking about this is how do we live in the world but not of it? The scripture from John 17 puts it this way, and this is Jesus praying to the Father. He says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the word has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So you've probably heard this passage before if you've been in church for a while. And we usually summarize it by saying you should be in the world but not of it. Right? We say that all the time. Be in the world but not of it. And which kind of implies, yeah, we're stuck in this awful, evil, sinful world, but just try to like stay away from all that stuff. Not don't be of it. Which has kind of a a differentiation feel, right? A kind of an isolationist feel. But that's not actually how Jesus says it. He puts it in the opposite order, if you notice from this passage. He says, you're not of the world. In fact, he says it twice. They're not of this world, but you're in it. You're not of this world. He starts with this. He says, you are a Christian. The world and its values do not define you. And I feel like that needs to be spoken over you. The world and its values don't define you, whether it's your success, your popularity, your sexuality, your money, your looks, whether the values around you are conservative or liberal, whether they're Muslim or Jewish or Christian or atheist, it doesn't, th th you're not defined by those values. You never have to be, okay? You can be a child of God, a follower of Jesus, and, and, and know that you have a home in heaven someday. That is your identity. We have to walk around with that identity in us, amen? That needs to be who we are wherever we are, whatever culture we're in, and that all of life, how you interact with others, how you shine your light in the world, how you love, how you serve, has to stem from that place of identity. You have to know, we have to know, I have to know who we are, wherever world, whatever culture we're in. And then Jesus says, I'm sending you into the world. It's like knowing who you are, knowing whose you are, you get to go into this 21st century world and be a light for him. What a joy to be in this culture in this time. He could have sent you into the world in the 18th century. He could have sent you into the world in the 10th century. Let's all be glad we weren't here in the 10th century. <laughs> was not a really happy, easy time. Uh, we could have been sent into the world in the 5th century. But he sent us here in the 21st century to be here in this place, in Greensboro, for such a time as this. And you are fully whole and fully content in Christ, but sent here to show his love and be a part of what God is doing in the world. That's a beautiful thing. What a beautiful calling we have. 
And so here's what's interesting. What we learn from the travels of Paul is that sometimes when we're sent into the world, we're going to have to assimilate, which is, again, becoming like the culture. And sometimes we're going to have to differentiate, stand up against the culture and what it stands for. Two great examples in the scripture. Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.9. I don't have the scriptures up for you, but it's where Paul tells the women to adorn themselves with elaborate, or not to adorn themselves with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. He's telling them not to put on jewelry and pearls and gold, which, you know, if this was true for us, a lot of us are in trouble today, including me, because I've got my earrings on. <laughs> um, but the reason he said that, and you might ask, why, did he why does that matter? Kind of like the jeans, you know, what does it matter to God if we wear jewelry? But, but again, because of the culture in Ephesus, if you remember, this is the culture where Timothy was serving, was the temple of Aphrodite. And if you remember from Corinth, the temple of Aphrodite, was, who's, who is Aphrodite? Anybody remember what goddess she is? Goddess of sexual love, right. And the temple priestesses who served in that temple were temple prostitutes. That's what they did in order to, to worship Aphrodite. And so these prostitutes often wore ornate jewelry, elaborate ha hairstyles in order to attract the men to come worship at the temple. So Paul here is advising kind of a differentiation strategy. He's saying don't look like that because it's really going to confuse people <laughs> if you're looking like a temple prostitute. And we're trying to talk about Jesus. So he's telling them it's going to confuse the message. See, for Paul, it's always about what's going to bring the message of Jesus most clearly. And so he says, don't, don't look like that, okay? Be, be, don't put on all that jewelry. But here's what's interesting. In the Corinthian church, he says something very different. In 1 Corinthians 8, he has a different take on another hot-button hot issue, which was should Christians eat food sacrificed to idols? If you're going to take a differentiation strategy, an isolation strategy about eating food to idols, you'd say, no, we shouldn't do that because it's representing the pagans and, you know, look bad and we shouldn't do it. And yet Paul, again, says in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, an idol's nothing. An idol's nothing. Food doesn't bring us near to God. We're no worse if we eat, no better if we do. So he's saying it's okay for you to eat the food that's been in an idol's temple to offer to God. There's nothing evil about the food that's been sacrificed there. You are free in Christ. And so he's saying, go ahead and assimilate. Be like the other people that are eating. There's no harm in it. But he just gives us a warning. He does give us a warning that says, be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So he's saying that this may bother some people's conscience. So not everyone will come to the same conclusion. So be careful. Don't cause them to stumble. This is an assimilation strategy. Interesting, right? In two different churches, two different situations, Paul is showing two different ways of interacting with the culture. So this leads to some difficult questions in our culture today, right? There's a lot of questions about whether to uh, uh, assimilate or differentiate. When to differentiate? When do what cultural practices stand so much against their Christian faith that they have to be rejected? And which, when to assimilate? What aspects of culture can we connect to and enjoy as Christians? And how are we a light to Jesus throughout it all? And here's the thing. We're all Christians, so what we like, or many of us here are Christians, some of you may not be, and I'm so happy that you're here and listening to this. I hope it's informative and interesting for you, um, but I, here's the thing. As a Christian, generally, we like black and white answers, don't we? We want to know what's the right and what's the wrong. <laughs> we don't like any areas of gray, and as I get older, I find there's a lot of areas of gray, more, more than I thought um, that there were a long time ago, but many questions come up. For example, should a Christian drink or not? Is going out to a bar okay? Is it okay to go to a bar and drink responsibly where other people are getting drunk? Or should we not be in an environment where people are getting drunk? 
What's the right answer to that? Hard one, right? How about our kids in sports? Should we be taking a stand against Sunday morning games that conflict with church? Or should we let them be part of the team and then just decide to watch the church service later? Because now we got it on live stream, so you can watch it later. How about social media, movies, and TV? Should we watch all the thing, same things that everyone else watches, even though some of the values and behaviors on it don't, you know, don't, uh, aren't, don't jive with our Christian values? But do we watch all of it? Is there some of it we don't watch? Which, is it rated R? Is it rated PG-13? What is it that we watch? What is it that we don't watch? How do we decide if some of it's not profitable? I sometimes think in these issues, as Christians, we major on the minors. We focus on the R-rated movies and getting drunk or other morality issues, but they, we also miss some other ways that we, without even realizing it, have probably assimilated into the culture. Let me give you one that was very prevalent up north. I don't know if it's, I, mean, I haven't been here long enough to know if it's as true in the south. I suspect it is. But the assumption is that once you start to make a lot of money, once you get promoted and start to make more money, you automatically upgrade your house and your car and maybe your clothes. Right? Because you got more money, so you might as well upgrade. That's an assumption of the world. Maybe there's something else you could do with all that new money that you've got coming in. Um, assumption, there's an assumption in our world that you're going to sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend before you're married because that's what everybody does on TV. And, you know, why wouldn't you? That's how you figure out if you're compatible, right? What this old-fashioned stuff about saving it till marriage. So that's what our culture is saying today. And so many of us have, have bought into that worldview. What about the assumption that we need to put our kid in every single activity? so that they get into the best schools and they can make all the money so that they can really be successful in life later on at, at, at risk of, of not going to church, not going to youth group. So see how it is possible for us to be assimilating so much that no one would ever know we're a Christian, but it's also possible to differentiate so much that we would just seem strange and no one would be attracted to the gospel. So I know now you're like, okay, is she going to tell us all the answers to all those questions? <laughs> and the answer is no, I'm not going to. First of all, that's not, the, that's not the kind of church we are, okay? I don't stand up here and tell you this is how you should live your life. We, we talk about Jesus and we go to the Bible, and I trust the Holy Spirit in you to speak to you about your life and what you're doing. Um, and, but I'm raising these questions so that we are intentional. Does that make sense? We have to be aware that all the time, and sometimes without even thinking, we are absorbing from the culture, sometimes, and sometimes also, without even thinking, we're reject rejecting the culture. So we, we need to be more intentional about whether we're assimilating or differentiating. We have to ask ourselves a question, as the Apostle Paul would have, how do I best reflect the life and the love and the message of Jesus? What will help people see the love and sacrifice of Jesus? And Paul, interestingly, didn't have the same answer for every situation, right? We also may not all draw the same conclusions. Some of us have made, made different conclusions on many of these issues, and that's okay, okay? It's okay for us not to necessarily interact with the culture in the same way, but here's what I want us to do. I want everyone of us to be intentional. I want us to study what the Word of God says so that you know what it says about the issue that you're talking about. I want you to listen to your conscience, listen to the Holy Spirit, the speaking within you, and then do what God says and put it on your heart. This is not just for you, it's for me as well. This is what we are not, there's a time not to fight against the culture, to just relax and enjoy the things that we get to enjoy as 21st century Christians and not get caught up in legalism, but there's also a time to say everybody else may be doing it, but I'm not going to. Amen? Amen. We cannot drink the full glass of the world's offerings without thinking. We simply can't.
All right, we have to go to the word of God. I want us to be missional, building bridges, finding commonality and rejoicing in it, reaching the world. And so we're going to look at Paul's example today. We got to read how he interacted with the people of Athens, and we're going to look at that. He had such a spirit-led balance that we can really learn from in these issues. The first thing I want to say is that Paul knew the culture, he respected the culture, and he spoke to the culture. That's the first thing. If you notice when he was talking to those people in, in Acts in the passage that Daniel read, um, he was looking around at all their objects of worship, and he seemed very familiar with the whole scene. He understood what all their gods were. Um, he, studied, he must have studied them to understand, and he lived in that culture, so he also absorbed some of that from the culture. He spoke to the people of the Areopagus, where the philosophers were, where the temples would have been, and he referenced their gods. He knew where they all were. Now, it's interesting where he was speaking. I'm going to show you a couple pictures um, here. So first of all, there he is. In a so Athens is way over there, what was called Achaia then. It was, of course, Greece now. Um, and so if you go to the next slide, um, this is where he would have... Uh, next one, actually. Um, this is where he would have been speaking. So this is the Areopagus, where he was speaking to those philosophers. So it's basically just kind of like a rocky hill where they would, it's so interesting, right? But the Greeks would just gather and talk about ideas, right? It said they did nothing all day but just talk about ideas. Well, this is where they did that. They would gather right here. This is the Acropolis, where the Parthenon is, um, and people uh, visit that all the time. And then this is the city of Athens, out here, So you're kind of looking out over the city. What a nice place to be a philosopher and, and talk about ideas. And so then the next um, slide shows you um, looking up from the Areopagus. So you're sitting here on, the, on that stony outcropping, looking up to this Acropolis, which is the um, many temples up here. The Temple of Athena, which is what the Parthenon is, Poseidon, Erechtheus, Pandrosus. So these are all temples. So he's, he's looking, Paul is sitting here, and he's saying, I see you're very religious. Look at all these temples up here. And then if you turn around and look the other way, next slide, uh, you're looking out over the city of Athens, and he could have seen, it wouldn't have looked like this, obviously, not quite so built up, and he would have seen all the temples also dotting the landscape of Athens. If you go to the next slide, there's a little one. We, we could see the Temple of Zeus is in there, but there were many others out there. Um, so he was, he was looking around, and he's saying, you know, here you have, uh, you, you have so many, you're so religious. You have so many gods. There's even the temple to the unknown god. Um, this one if is the next slide, I think. Um, let's see. Yeah. They, they couldn't find one of these in, in Greece, but in Rome they found this altar to an unknown god. So that would have been maybe perhaps what it looked like uh, in Athens at the time as well. So, you know, Paul knew about these gods. He was able to talk very knowledgeably about them. He, he, he talked about the altar of the unknown god. And you could ask, why should he care about Artemis or Apollo or Zeus? But why couldn't he just talk about Jesus? But see, Paul knew that in order to speak to the culture, you need to understand what they care about. You need to care about what people care about. And he said, and I, I, I see in every way you're very religious. He quotes one of their poets, so he obviously read some of their reading material. Um, it's fascinating, actually. He understood them. He respected them. He was so gracious. He was curious. He was interested in them and what they were reading, what they were talking about. He knew that. And so we might ask ourselves the same question. Why should we care about the latest TV shows or sports teams or how to use social media or even the political landscape? Why should we know? Because this is our culture. We're called to understand what it is that people are doing. We're called to be a light, and we have to be familiar enough with the world and the world's point of view um, that you know, we can understand what need is all this filling, and how does Jesus speak to that need? That was always where Paul was. How does Jesus speak to the need that all of this is filling? Now, I know some of you out there are assimilators. You're more of the assimilation bent. See, we all tend to 
lean, either assimilation or differentiation, kind of maybe depending on how you grew up and maybe your personality. And so those of you that are more of an assimilation bent and you know who you are, you like the culture and you're all into the culture, you probably know way more about the culture maybe than you even know about your Bible. You pr many of you could probably give me the plot line of Ted Lasso or the latest Black Panther movie much easier than you could tell me what the gospel is or how, why Jesus died for your sins or where the book of Romans is, right? So some of us, we, we assimilate so much that we know a lot about the culture. And we need, to, we need to become informed Christians about our own faith, right? We need to read our Bible and know the Bible and, and know why we believe what we believe. But I know some of you might be of the other bent, more of an isolationist or differentiation bent. And we need to be challenged not to react, not to be reactionary against culture. Um, and everything in the world. It's easy to say, and I hear this all the time, that American culture is just rotten and godless and it's just turning away um, from the truth. And there's a lot of truth to that, right? There's a lot of confusion out there and, and about gender and politics and morality. It's all true. Much of our culture has gotten very secular. Sometimes it's even anti-Christian, right, or anti-faith. Um, but I also want us to see the good things in our culture. See, that's what Paul did. He saw the good things and he connected to them. And so I'm just going to you know, tell you a few, th I know you know these things, but there's, there's some really good things going on in our culture today. There's such a greater focus on justice for all, have you noticed that, than there ever was. Um, sexual harassment training is now mandatory in so many workplaces, including Gate City Vineyard, okay? Every staff person goes through sexual harassment training here. This used to not be a thing, right? I mean, people just expected that women especially would be harassed in some way, especially if they were good looking in the workplace, they just laugh it off, it was not a big deal. Now we're like, no, that's serious, right? It makes a person uncomfortable, they can't work, well, it's not right. Um, and so that, that's become a new focus, which I think is a great thing in our culture. Um, there's been an awakening in our culture about racism and, and injustices, particularly since the death of George Floyd, but it was kind of building up even before then. And we're realizing the way that racism is reinforced by systems, and people are fighting against that, right, and working against that in, in productive ways. This is a good thing. It's a good thing. There's a greater concern over mental health. Have you noticed that stigma of mental health has started to go away? I've been noticing in my son's friends, um, you know, like back in the day, if you had a mental health problem, you never wanted anybody to know. Like you, you hid it, right? Because that was embarrassing. It was a shame to the family or something. And I see my, fr my, my son's friends posting on Facebook, yeah, you know, I had to go to my therapist because I've got this problem or I'm on this drug for, because of this or I've, I struggle with anxiety or I struggle with depression. So openly, there's no, the stigma is, is being taken away. I'm not going to say it's completely taken away, but it's being taken away. And autistic children are getting help like never before. They used to be institutionalized and be the family's secret. Now that's not a thing at all. These are good things in our culture. These are good things in our culture. And there's also a renewed concern for the environment and the world, right? We realize that we're stewards of this world and we can't fill it up with trash. And so even though I always forget my, my grocery bag, my reusable grocery bag, <laughs> Um, and, it, you know, it's a pain to have to remember it, right? It's always at home when you get to the grocery store. But this is a good thing, right? As Christians, we should lead the way in these things, in justice, in, in caring for our environment, in caring for women and men and, and in the workplace. We should lead the way in this, and we should be happy to see that this is what good things are coming in the culture. So Paul knew the culture. He appreciated and was able to pick out what's good and connect with those things. Now, the second thing Paul did is he started fresh with every audience. So it's wonderful to see this. Um, he didn't just assume that the new group would be like the last group. Uh, if we go to this next slide, there's a, um, it might be before this because we've skipped ahead now. 
Um, yeah, there we go, the map. So these are the different places where he went. You've seen this map now multiple times, the different journeys that he took. And every place he kind of took a different approach. In Pisidian Antioch, which was over here, we've talked about that a few times, he went to the synagogue. And he talked kind of historically about the nation of Israel and the predictions about uh, um, a Messiah and how Jesus was the person who fulfilled all those prophecies, right? So that was in Pisidian Antioch. In Berea, which is over here, let's see if I can see it. I think it's, it's over here somewhere. Where's Berea? Where, and then I see it. Oh, yeah, right there. There's Berea, right there. Um, that's where everybody listened to Paul, and then they immediately checked the scriptures to make sure what he said was true. I love the people in Berea. So they just, they weren't going to take anything on face value uh, that Paul said, even if he was convincing, they were going to say, well, we're going to see if the scriptures are true. So they were students, right? They were scholars. They wanted to make sure, they were also skeptics. They're like, I'm not going to believe this stuff until I make sure it's true. So I love that about them. And he just entered right into that, right? He was, he dealt with them. Now in Philippi, which is also up here, let's see if I can find it. It's hard for me to say. See, oh yeah, there's Philippi. Philippi's right there. Philippi, he took a really interesting approach. He started with a women's prayer group. What a place to start their church. And the women, and it was outside the city. The women were meeting outside the city. They gathered outside to pray, and he valued them, which was huge for this time. Um, he sat with them, and he taught them about Jesus. And as a result, Lydia became a believer, and she started the church, the first church in Philippi, in her house. So he took a completely different approach in Philippi. And finally, in Athens, you heard how he went with kind of more of an intellectual, logical, philosophical approach because he was dealing with philosophers and, and thinkers and pundits and, and talk show hosts. You know, he was able to debate with the best of them. So again, I want to ask us what that would look like for each one of us. To start fresh with every person we meet, deeply interested in who they are and why they do what they do, why they believe the way they do, listening to where they come from, even if it's a very different place than us. And I want you to think about your neighbors. I want you to think about your friends at work. I want you to think about, um, you know, people even in your family. And, and so if we can't, we've got to be able to see them and listen to them so we can meet them right where they are. This is this what Paul would have done. And I want to just take a moment, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything, but I want to talk to people who are over 45 years old out here. I know there's a few of you who are over 45. And by the way, you who are under 45, it's coming to you, okay? It's only like 20 years later and you'll be here, okay? So don't, you know, don't think you're out of it. But we have a tendency, don't we, as we get older, to think, oh, the young people these days, they are the worst. I can't believe what they're getting into. Is anyone in here old enough, there might be somebody, who remembers when rock and roll was evil and from the devil? And when it came out, it was like, you know, Oh, no, you can't have those beats, you know. And Meanwhile, we've got, like, drums and electric guitars up here in the city. So we know that, th that they were crazy, right? They didn't know what they were talking about. But, but this is parents do this of every age. We always think that whatever the young people are up to is wrong um, and not good because we don't understand it. I remember um, in college, I was, I was um, majoring in computer science, which was kind of a relatively newish field at the time. Uh, and um, my aunt, who was a really strong believer, I told her I was studying computers. She says, oh, no, you shouldn't do that. She said, computers are from the devil because they can think, but they have no soul. So she was, like, really, like, starting to really, she started to pray for me real hard after that because she thought I was working with the devil in the computers. So, you know, she didn't understand the technology, right? And so she just put a spiritual spin on it, which is what we do. <laughs> we tend to do that. Um, something we don't understand, we put a spiritual spin on it. I want us to look at the younger generation Okay, the millennials and the Gen Zs and whoever's coming up after them with fresh eyes. 
I want you to see the incredible concern they have for justice and for acceptance of all people. I want you to see that their music is interesting and creative and fresh. Might not be your favorite music, but it's, it's creative, it's fresh. I want us to see that their comfort level with technology is unbelievable. I mean, some of these kids have been growing up, you know, they were two years old and they had a, uh, an iPhone in their hand, right? Their, their comfort level with, with technology is different from any, anything that we can do, and they're going to be able to do things with it that we could never dream of. And they rightly crave community and authenticity over flashy slogans and slick programs. They see right through all that stuff. And this is also a generation that grew up fearing a shooter would come into their school, had to have drills about what to do when the shooter comes. This is also a generation that grew up with many types of family configurations, with single parents and divorced parents and remarried parents. They've grown up in a divided and angry world, haven't they? So this generation has so much to offer. We need to be praying for them. We need to love them. We need to stop judging them and start loving them and, and letting them be part of what we're doing to bring the gospel. That's, this is, we are in everyone plays. It doesn't matter how old or how young you are. You don't have to have reached a certain age uh, to serve God and to do so much. This generation has a lot to offer. And for all of us, we should look around at the person that we, you know, we, we maybe have assumed they were a certain way and look at them with fresh eyes today. That grumpy older man that lives down the street is always cranky about people getting on his lawn. What's going on in his life that makes him that way? How about the ambitious and irritatingly competitive coworker that you're always kind of coming up against? How can you love them? The mean classmate in your school, the stressed out and tired single mom, the immigrant family that just moved in down the street. How can we see them with Jesus' eyes? And how can we love them and understand them and relate to them in their language, in their culture, in their world? This is something the Apostle Paul would have done. We're learning this from him. So the last thing I want to say about Paul here is that he was willing to stand out as well as to blend in. Um, as long as he was spreading the good news. So, you know, he was willing to assimilate and differentiate as long as he was preaching the gospel. When he proclaimed the good news, and, and here's, the, here's the truth, sometimes, even if you are winsome and culturally sensitive and, um, and kind, still the gospel may be an offense to some. It may be foolish to others, a stumbling block to others. That's what says it in scripture. You can't please all the people at the, all the time. But Paul just kept at the basic message of Jesus. He didn't add a lot of other stuff to it. He kept to the basic message of Jesus. And so he always stirred up something at the same time that he also spoke into their world. He couldn't help it. Um, if you'll notice in the story of Athens, everything was going fine until he mentioned what? What was the thing that he mentioned that got them like, the resurrection, right? He mentioned the resurrection. And, you know, you could say, well, then maybe he shouldn't talk about the resurrection because, you know, that kind of offends people. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> you can't talk about the gospel without talking about the resurrection. I mean, it's the whole thing, isn't it? I mean, that's our faith. Um, without the resurrection, you have no faith. It's because of the resurrection that sin and death were conquered and we have new life in him and we're set free from sin. So it has to be spoken of at some point. You don't have to lead out with the resurrection uh, when you're first meeting a person, but it is something that has to come up if you're going to talk about the, about the gospel. And so Paul put it out there and he dealt with the repercussions of that. He was culturally sensitive and respectful, but never watered down the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1 says this, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Where Jesus was a stumbling block, he let it happen. He just made sure he wasn't the stumbling block in his actions and in his insensitivity to culture. 
And just as he was willing to stand out when necessary, he still, when possible, made every effort to assimilate, to connect with those he spoke to on their terms, finding commonality with them so that nothing would stand in the way of them hearing the good news. This is a powerful passage that shows his missional heart. 1 Corinthians 9, our last scripture today. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though myself, I am not under the law. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, I am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. This is the heart of Paul. I do this all for the sake of the gospel that I may share in his blessings. So what an example we have in Paul, right? What an example. I know sometimes we like to talk about our country being in a culture war and, and there's things about our culture we want changed and, and I understand that, but I'm struck by the fact that Paul, while he was grieved by aspects of his culture, it says he was distressed by all the idols. He obviously didn't approve of the government they had. They were persecuting Christians. And yet I never see him rallying people to make changes in the society or different leaders or even trying to change the culture. He, he really simply preached the good news. He wanted to just talk about Jesus however he could. He was an example in the way he lived and loved people. He told anyone that would listen. And he used government officials. We saw that in the previous week. He used any connections he had to change um, so that hearts could be changed. He wasn't fighting a culture war. He was fighting for people's hearts. He was in a battle for people's hearts. That's what he was doing. And listen, some of us may be called to influence the culture in different ways, in government and in, in, in the laws, and that's all good. But we have to remember that hearts can be changed. Whatever laws are going on around us, whatever culture we're in, hearts can still be changed. God doesn't despise the small things as each one is being called one by one to him. So let me just summarize this by saying you're not of the world, but you're sent into it. So first of all, know who you are. Remember your identity in Christ. Our culture around us, no matter what direction it goes, if it gets completely secular, if it's always, if we, God forbid, end up in a place where we're getting persecuted for faith, you are still a child of God. You, your identity is in him. You do not have to be defined by the culture around you, and your Lord is going to stand with you no matter what. He's never going to leave you or forsake you. But second of all, know that you're sent. We're sent into the world to be a light, to love others. God so loved the world that he gave his son. And so let us love people as well. If he loved all the people of the world, people far away from him, people involved in all kinds of worldly and damaging things, but God still loves them, so we've got to love them too. That's got to be our heart. The third is to be attentional about how you assimilate and differentiate. I just hope that this somewhat philosophical discussion today has made you think a little bit about the ways in which you are absorbing what the world offers or not absorbing. We can't absorb everything that it offers but on the other hand, we can respect and enjoy the world we've been placed in, the good things that are there. Understand the culture, appreciate it, and affirm what is good. And then finally, like Paul, never stop talking about Jesus and what he's done for you. That's what we're called here to do. We're called to be missional, to be, to be praying for our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers, to not give up on people that seem like they're very far from God. The ones sometimes that are farthest to God are often the ones that fall the hardest for Jesus because um, maybe they've been protesting too much, right? They've been too far. They, they, it, care, it, it speaks to something in them. 
And so we need to be people who love all and care for all. Never stop talking about Jesus. I'd like us to just close our eyes for a moment to pray. And Lord, um, there's been a lot of concepts here thrown out today. But I, I, I just I want to pray right now. And as uh, Charles and the team comes back up, give us a moment to just absorb what you're speaking to us, Lord. It may be that we are assimilating a lot in our culture, and maybe we are feeling like maybe we shouldn't. Maybe there's things we're going to need to stand a little against. Maybe some of us are differentiating a lot, and we feel like we need to understand the culture better and, and appreciate it more. Maybe some of us are just at a place where we're, we're realizing I'm sent. I'm sent to speak about my faith. I never really thought about that. Lord, give us courage. And there may be some of us today who don't know that our identity is in Christ. That we don't realize that we, are, we can be a child of God. Maybe we've never made that commitment. And so I want to pray for anyone here who's considering it, who's thinking about it. Lord, I'm so thankful that they're here to just listen. And Lord, you don't pressure us, Lord. You're not a hard sell. You just keep sitting next to us and talking to us. So I just pray that if that's you today, that you just keep your eyes open and ears open to Jesus today. Let him draw you. Let him draw you to himself. He is good. He is good. teams that are going to come up as the band plays the next song. You are welcome to come up and be prayed for. You may have something going on in your life that has nothing to do with what I've been talking about, but just some struggles at home, struggles with work, struggles with your faith. And I just want to make sure that you don't leave this place without letting God touch you. We sort of started that during the worship time, and I'd love it to continue here. So please feel free to come up and be prayed for. Also, if you uh, want prayer in your seat, you can always just nudge the person next to you and they will probably be happy to pray for you. So, Lord, thank you for this time. We're compelled. We're sent out. Lord, send us out.